Um, We're going to read from Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 1 to 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Uh, We're not dropping into Matthew to read that text today. Uh, We're dropping back into Matthew We've been slowly working our way through this gospel according to Matthew over the past couple of years and so we resume that today, uh, hopefully for the next few weeks. And uh, the nature of expository preaching like that, uh, working through whole books of the Bible, uh, which we do most of the time, uh, helps safeguard us so that we don't inadvertently you know, skip over God's word uh, or or subconsciously pick out just our favourite parts all the time. Uh, but that we systematically work through all of what God has said and therefore let him set the agenda in what we read and not avoid the tough parts that we might not like. Uh, And I say all of that today by way of saying that I haven't chosen to preach through this text today. And I say that because this scripture that we just happen to be up to in Matthew's Gospel is one of those tough parts of scripture that many of us won't like. And it'll no doubt be very painful for some of us to have even sat through that reading of that scripture and heard what Jesus just said. Uh, But we're getting ahead of ourselves, perhaps. Let's just start at the start in chapter 19 and verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. What sayings is Matthew talking about that Jesus had finished? We should probably ask there as a good way to start. If you recall, uh, or if you just glance back on the page, I suppose, where we had left off last time, Jesus had been teaching about forgiveness. Uh, Not at all irrelevant to what he's now going to talk about in chapter 19 and perhaps not disconnected, therefore, from what the Pharisees have gone away and cooked up and come to him now to question him about. Uh, Pharisees, verse 3, came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, These men are not interested in the truth behind that, but simply they just want to test Jesus 
it says. Uh, that is, they want to catch him out somehow. Uh, in other words, they're not asking him what they should actually practice on this matter, but fishing for something that they can reject from Jesus. But their case study here is good for us to explore as a church, and no doubt, in my mind at least, we find it in our scripture, not just as a way of you know, capturing the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees as this narrative rolls along, but actually because Jesus wants us to hear what he has to say on this, and so that we would heed what he does say. The question that the Pharisees put to him is loaded with a division that already existed in Jesus' day around a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, it might be worth us just looking that up if you have your Bibles there. Uh, in these church Bibles, it's page 165, uh, Deuteronomy 24. And it's just these first uh, few verses, really, in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and so on and so on. The verse goes on to speak about those two not remarrying later on if in the meantime the woman had married someone else who had also divorced her. And so it's not strictly a law about divorce per se but the language in that law there had triggered so much debate uh, in Jewish thought as to what constitutes these ideas here of, of the woman finding no favour in her husband's eyes and what would constitute indecency in the wife. Uh, and therefore, of course, what might constitute these grounds for divorce that are just sort of assumed by this law. Uh, the two main schools of Jewish thought were those of Rabbi Hillel, who argued that, well, you know, if, if the man found someone prettier than his wife, well, 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 she's no longer, therefore, technically finding favour in his eyes. On the other hand, if she, say, burnt the dinner, that would actually constitute indecency, if you think about it, because she would be interfering with his pursuit of uh, wholeness and, and purity in his household. At the other end of the spectrum to that school of thought, uh, the school of Shammai maintained that only grave matters, especially you know, the infidelity of a spouse, that would constitute indecency and have her fall out of favour. Uh, the Pharisees, I don't think, here in Matthew 19, uh, are really interested. I think they just want to push Jesus into one of those two camps and therefore you know, divide his supporters. Uh, but he answers them in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Uh, clearly, Jesus has a high view of marriage from those words. Indeed, while our Bibles here, these ESVs, uh, title this section teaching about divorce, in line with the Pharisees' question, of course, uh, we might stop and note that to do so, Jesus first lays down some very clear and very powerful teaching on marriage. 
in that something in the way that God created humanity from the very beginning, something in the way of, of God's will and purpose and intention, sets up a fundamental context whereby a man and a woman can be brought together in such a way that the two people become one new entity. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Husband and wife, therefore, do not simply, you know, pair up and, and remain two persons and sort of journey through life side by side together. That's how we think of marriage. Uh, but in Jesus' eyes and in the design that God set forth from the beginning, marriage is far more intimate. They do not just cohabit, co-mingle. No, no, much more than that, Jesus says. The two are no longer even to be regarded as two. They come together to be fused, melted, lost into one another until they are no longer two, but one. Whatever Jesus means by that, I think it's pretty safe to say that our take on marriage is not quite so high. We talk, you know, in terms of one accommodating the other, one protecting the other, one providing for the other, one honouring the other, and so on and so forth. Jesus talks, in, in terms of God's design for marriage, Jesus talks of the one and the other becoming forfeit from here on. That each is now surrendered in some mysterious way so that the two can be reshaped as one. So the first thing I think we might take on here in Matthew 19 is that Jesus has a supremely high view of marriage. And we might aspire to that too. And from that high view of marriage, the second thing that we can take on from this scripture is just as clear in Jesus' answer. Uh, marriage as God designed it has no need of divorce. It has no place for divorce. Uh, might we aspire to that view too? A divorce is contrary to God's purpose. It rejects this one fleshness idea that he has intended marriage to be. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The idea of divorce flows out of our take on marriage, which obviously falls short of what God designed it to be. And what God designed for husband and wife is, is not something for us to separate. Jesus' words on that are pretty clear, aren't they? The problem arises because we have taken on less than what God designed, such that divorce is a pervasive reality that has touched or, or ripped through many of our lives. So the Pharisees push harder on this because Jesus' answer just seems too simplistic, doesn't it? It's just too, too lofty and too high. How are we supposed to make sense of the basic reality that we find in us and, and all around us on this most precious and intimate human relationship breaking down as it does at times. They push. They said to him in verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The reason that marriage sometimes comes to divorce is not, you know, because divorce is part of God's design or plan. Jesus repeats that phrase from the beginning to defend the creational design. Marriage was given of God uh, so that a man and a woman can be refused into one flesh. Divorce came because of the hardness of our hearts. Husbands and wives have been hardened by sin ever since the fall of humankind. Uh, and that sin has, has hardened our instinct to, to, to mark out and defend our, ourself over and against the other and over and against God's creational design. And that affects every human heart and affects every human relationship. And yes, even this most sacred and precious relationship of marriage. Hard hearts are what bring about divorce. Divorce was accommodated in God's law only by way of supportive restrictions put in place to protect hurt parties because of our hard hearts. And, and so hard are our hearts that we don't truly grasp Jesus' take on marriage to begin with. And yet we should not miss a third point in all this. Obviously, Jesus wants us to soften our hearts in our marriage. He advocates here for God's creational purpose for marriage rather than the hard-hearted instinct we have to, to exploit what has been permitted under law as the Pharisees seem to be uh, want to do here. Jesus allows but one clause in response to their question. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We might slow down a little bit and try to unpack and, and understand and take that in. If we divorce for any reason, as the Pharisees had put it in chapter 3, other than because of sexual immorality, if we were then to remarry, that would be committing adultery, says Jesus. And surely by committing adultery through remarriage, what he means is that the first marriage hadn't actually been dissolved. Divorced on legal terms on some other grounds, but not concluded in God's eyes. Therefore, if the first marriage was still in place, then uh, yes, remarrying would be adulterous. All of the reasons our hard hearts might conceive of uh, to divorce. There is only one reason conceded by Jesus that we may break marriage legally with divorce. Uh, that is, if husband and or wife have violated this one flesh purpose of marriage through sexual immorality. And so we might define that clause. Sexual immorality is a broad term referring to any sexual activity outside the marriage relationship of husband and wife. Sex was designed and given explicitly for the marriage relationship of husband and wife. And so sex is pursued 
immorally if it is pursued any way outside of that marriage relationship. That's what the Bible means when it uses that word, sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual activity outside this context of husband and wife. And for Jesus, that so violates this one-fleshed nature and purpose and, and contract of marriage that marriage may then be legally dissolved through divorce if that has occurred. Uh, for the sake of the one who may have been hurt by that sexual immorality, we might appreciate Jesus' grants here, release. And the one who has been divorced like so is free to remarry, we can see in Jesus' words here. Again, for the sake of the one and the protection of the one, I guess, who's lost their home or their security and all their social support and so on, we might appreciate that release. But no other grounds are granted here by Jesus to seek out divorce. But that sexual immorality has occurred. One partner has been sexually unfaithful to the other. Which is a hard word. But actually Jesus said this very same thing back in chapter 5 when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, if you recall, all that time ago. Chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, this time in chapter 19, the disciples speak up and, and capture for us just how hard this teaching here is to our ears. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Uh, judging by that response from Jesus, uh, yes, it may well be better not to marry if these words are too hard. And not just the hard word about divorce here, but the hard word he puts down here about marriage to begin with. If we just cannot grasp this idea of one fleshness in marriage and, and all of that that will entail, then, it, then yes, it may be better not to enter marriage at all. Anyway, what would you say? Has Jesus passed this test that the Pharisees have put to him with what he just said here? Some of us may be reading this and realising that we haven't done as Jesus teaches here. Maybe we have been sexually immoral against our spouse. Maybe we have been hard-hearted in our marriage in, in various kinds of ways. Maybe we have divorced for reasons other than this one that Jesus allows here. Maybe we've even then remarried and, and by his words here we are therefore committing adultery or have done against our former spouse. Maybe we've tried to taste of this, this precious, sacred, one fleshness that Jesus speaks of here without even being married, emptying God's gift of marriage of a good part of its value. And yet these kinds of things cannot simply be undone if we have done them. 
So we might only take his gracious invitation in this gospel all the way through to repent if we read his words here and if we can see that we have done wrong repent and now look forward as we seek to follow jesus and we know too that if we do confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness his gospel says so and so too, uh, we know that his gospel promises us a new heart now and the help of his Holy Spirit to follow him more closely from now on. And so whatever our past might involve, I want to suggest we look forward now with Jesus and, and pick out, therefore, some, some unavoidable implications of what he just said here about marriage and divorce. It is hard to receive, and yet what he says is perfectly clear. Perfectly clear. So let's step back, take a deep breath and, and just try to get a sense of what it is that Jesus is calling us to here. What would he have us do about our reality here on? To which I think there are four very clear things in this scripture. Uh, one, do not enter into marriage lightly. Do not enter into marriage lightly. Surely we must accept from Jesus here that marriage is a very precious thing in the eyes of God. That he joins husband and wife together and so much so that he would have them be refused as one flesh. That design that he has for marriage is it's going to call for complete humility of us. Sacrifice and giving up of each partner for this new life as one. Even though that may beyond, uh, be beyond a, a man and a woman and, and hard to even fathom this, this concept of, uh, uh, of oneness in flesh, especially when you know early in the relationship we're just dating and so on and so forth. It's very hard to grasp this stuff, but we must at least sit and read this and, and see that this is how high God's view is of marriage. So don't enter marriage lightly. And if you step into the idea of marriage, then step into that idea ready to surrender your very self for what God wants to do. Uh, two, do not break marriage lightly. Do not break marriage lightly. That flows logically, of course, from the high view of marriage put forward here. Divorce is granted only as a concession because of the hardness of the human heart. Not as some kind of, you know, fallback option if you don't really like what happens to unfold. Uh, we oughtn't look to break marriage as our culture tends to break marriage and as the Pharisees seem to be flagging in our text for any reason. Uh, Jesus clearly does not believe in low-fault divorce. The Pharisees seem to be pushing. Uh, of course, in, in our cultural context, though, no-fault divorce means that, well, well, our spouse could break the marriage off with us and, and if they're unbelievers who don't care at all for what Jesus says, then they might break it off lightly, as our culture does. They might break it off for any and for even no reason at all. Well, the Lord gives some beautiful comfort around that, should it happen to us too, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to look it up later, that if an unbelieving spouse should just abandon the marriage, then... Well, the believing spouse may be released from that and at peace over that. So too, his concession here in this text should bring some good comfort to those who've been hurt through sexual immorality by their partner. 
or who cheated on them with someone else. A divorce in that situation is not breaking marriage lightly. It's breaking marriage under the the concession that our Lord Jesus has given here. Uh, So uh, those in that situation surely may find some peace here in Jesus' words. And yet we should always see our marriage as precious, as is very clear here, such that we should pursue this, this one fleshness with our spouse. And so we might be very wary of our own hard hearts, that we don't go looking for reasons for divorce, trying to establish a case for divorce from various other grounds that Jesus doesn't allow for here. Which brings us to point three from his teaching here. Do not be hard-hearted in marriage. Do not be hard-hearted in marriage. Clearly what Jesus would have us do is soften our hearts for the sake of our marriage. I mean, such is the basic Christian call upon all of our relationships. How much more should it be the call in this relationship between husband and wife? If these two are to become one, then Hearts are going to need to be softened so that they can properly infuse and meld into each other, into something altogether new. But how incredibly difficult for us to do that. Such is our hard heart. For for a husband to hold fast to his wife, like Jesus is describing here, such that two are going to somehow become one, that's going to need every bit of what Jesus has been preaching through this gospel Humility, meekness, gentleness, other person-centeredness, forgiveness. One new flesh equals the surrender of each self. And husband and wife might look to Jesus on this, actually must look to Jesus on this to even grasp at this. See how completely he gave up himself to make us his bride. You see, the context of Jesus saying this hard word in Matthew 19 is that he is on his way to Jerusalem to lay down his very life for sinful and adulterous people to take us and purify us and make us his bride. Should not the measure to which we've been softened regarding that marriage carry over then to a softness in our hearts towards our marriages? Maybe our posture in marriage might help us gauge our posture before Jesus. How deeply we have grasped how truly unworthy we are of Jesus and yet how lovingly he sacrificed himself to cover our unworthiness and the scope of what's at stake in that union. Surely that gospel written through here should soften our hearts. Point four, uh, obviously, but it must be said, um, refrain from sexual immorality. Refrain from all sexual immorality. Jesus cannot be suggesting here that somehow sexual immorality is okay. Surely he's got the very opposite in mind. Refrain from all sexual activity outside this sacred God-given one-flesh relationship into which sex was given. And all of us need to be very careful and wary to factor this in. 
If you are married, pursue no other sexual activity but with your spouse. And if you are single, then do not misappropriate what God has given to husband and wife. Be as celibate as a eunuch, as Jesus says here, for the sake of the kingdom of God. He's speaking figuratively, I'm quite sure. But how strong are these words? Let uh, the things that God has created for marriage be things that are only celebrated in marriage. Uh, Let these two become one flesh, husband and wife, the way that God himself designed. Four very clear things in these scriptures, but to which all of which we might also observe uh, that this high view of marriage in scripture doesn't mean that it's all you know going to be sunshine and roses every day in fact if our hearts our hearts are at all hardened by sin and, and all of them are then we ought to expect that it won't all be sunshine and roses on any given day so marriages are going to have trouble we should be wise enough to realise husband and wife are going to take exception to one another at different times. They're going to find exceptions at times to this whole idea of marriage that they suddenly feel trapped in with each other. It's a rough process to becoming one, as Jesus describes here. That's a rough process, especially because of the hardness of our hearts. We're always going to be resisting in various little ways this God-intended change. Uh, We should therefore expect it's going to be bumpy, not smooth. Bumpy as two hard things slowly learn how to be softened and remoulded as one. So we might factor trouble into our marriage as an inevitable reality of this life. And and then from that we'll, we'll be wise and we'll plan how we'll handle that kind of trouble when it surely does come. Fundamental to which, for us as Christians, of course, is, is, as I say, we must be willing to embrace these gospel ideas of surrender at times. That, uh, But what do we do by instinct? Dig in and defend. No, we must embrace gospelly surrender. Think back through the Sermon on the Mount, if you get time later, uh, where Jesus first raised this difficult word about marriage and divorce. Read through that sermon. Consider all the different various ways as Christians that he calls us to lay down our guns for the sake of the other and for the sake of our relationship with the other. Humble surrender is going to be called for if two are somehow going to become one. Which is all good in theory. We also have to agree on practical help that we can seek when this gets beyond us, as it will. And on the one hand, we'll say, please don't withdraw from your church because of troubles in marriage. No, we should call on the church to help with marriage. And we should understand of the church what Jesus is laying down here and that the church must counsel husbands and wives according to this word. And so uh, biblical counsel, uh, counsel help is going to fight for marriage. It's going to advocate for reconciliation where hurt has, has occurred as, as far as it can be advocated. The Christian spouse, you see, and therefore the Christian church, must seek to correct the things failing in marriages, not just write the marriage off as a failure. And so uh, 
Correction or discipline may be called for. Separation may be appropriate for a time, but the biblical view is that reconciliation should be pursued between husband and wife until one of only two situations should defeat that cause. One, if sexual immorality has occurred, as Jesus grants here in Matthew 19. And two, if someone has been abandoned by their unbelieving spouse, as the Lord grants in 1 Corinthians 7. So where sexual immorality has broken the marriage relationship and hurt one of the partners in a way that just cannot be resolved, then the church ought to walk with those people if they should choose to walk through divorce. Uh, If uh, an unbelieving spouse has walked away from their marriage, then the church ought to help the one who's been abandoned to rebuild their own life. Uh, And the church, by the way, has no right to deny those believers what the Lord has given them as release in these scriptures we speak of today. If they may divorce by Jesus' concession, then they may divorce. Uh, But, of course, the broken couple may also find, you know, these gospel ideas of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation as husband and wife. They had, after all, become one flesh in God's eyes. So if you're helping a brother or sister who's going through these kinds of things, keep that foremost in mind. And on the flip side of church being there to help with marriage and divorce, we might also need secular help, of course, from outside the church at times, with our eyes wide open, of course, knowing that that kind of help may be far from Jesus' words. Indeed, the basic approach of professional support uh, might actually try to establish the case for uh, each party without having any understanding of this one fleshness that God has been creating through that marriage. And so that process may just inadvertently steer towards divorce rather than towards reconciliation. And it might do that on any or even no grounds at all. Uh, Secular support can be very, very helpful, of course, but it can also be dangerous to the Christian couple in trouble whose Bible has become closed. Uh, The key, I think, is to be looking, whether inside or outside the church, I think the key is to be looking for help, help to repair and restore and and rebuild what is so precious in God's eyes and and seeing divorce as a last resort and, and only if it fits with what Jesus has conceded. Anyway, all of this is pretty clear and straightforward on the pages of Scripture, wouldn't you say? But uh, very messy and and unpleasant in actual life. I think we should agree. Uh, No doubt, therefore, we best pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words uh, to us today, these hard words as they are on marriage and divorce. Father, we pray that you would forgive us if we've not always had your high view of marriage. Uh, Forgive us if we have not understood your teaching on divorce. And such is the nature of these things, Father, that what we have done in the past cannot simply be undone. So forgive us, please, where we have strayed. We pray that you would be with us as we now lift our eyes up and, and look forward now unto Jesus. Please 
soften our hearts. Please protect our marriages. And please keep all of us from sexual immorality. Father, I pray that you grant husbands and wives would be fused together as one. That you give wisdom to those who may find themselves under Jesus' concession, uh, facing the prospect of divorce because of sexual immorality. Pray that you grant peace to those who have been abandoned for Jesus' name. Together, Father, please teach us how to walk with one another lovingly and, and faithfully as your church. And we thank you for your gospel that makes us your church, that you died for unfaithful sinners like us to forgive us and cleanse us and renew us and make us your pride. Bind us then as one with Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.